0: Love history, but hate when it's stuffy and boring. Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charles, your friend, the neighborhood social scientist, and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and, of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Taku, you here? And I'm Gabby. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.
1: What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
2: The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside The Box of Oddities.
3: There's a huge department store kind of place here in uh, Cuenca, Ecuador, and we refer to it as kind of like Ecuadorian Target.
1: Sort of.
3: Sort of. It, yeah. But it has the most bizarre collection of items there. Personally, I love it. Oh, I I think it's it's wonderful. You, you never know what you're going to see there. They, they'll sell you cereal. Or a motorcycle.
1: Yeah. Um, The other day, I was looking for one of those little hooky things that I could sew inside my dress to keep my taters in. Mm -hmm. And um, I found them. And also, a cement mixer.
3: Yeah. (laughs) And one of the things that I always enjoy doing is looking in other people's carts Mm. and trying to read the backstory.
1: Oh, yeah.
3: And I saw a woman who had a bag of cement. Yep. And maternity clothing, what what, what exactly, what, what, what We're message? We're
1: remodeling and nesting um, preparing for a baby.
3: <laughs> okay. I think
1: that makes perfect sense. That's
3: not where my mind went, but okay.
1: I was so bummed when I was there yesterday and I couldn't find uh, crunchy taco shells, but I did find a machete. So, you know.
3: Yeah, you just never you know. You win some, you lose some. It's an adventure every time we go. Yep. Hey, in the quiet corners of French history, where the shadows of lost lovers linger and the echoes of bygone errors hum softly, there lies a tradition as mystifying as it is moving. Necrogami.
1: Is it like origami, but with dead people?
3: (laughs) That was what I thought, too. (laughs) A really morbid arts and crafts project. It's a practice where love, undeterred by the chasm of death, seeks... Solace in the Sacred Vows of Matrimony. Uh, today, we're going to talk about people who legally marry corpses. Oh, okay. Modern necronomy modern got its foothold in World War I. Right. Often referred to as the Great War. Um, it was a huge event that caused, well, ripples down through generations, impacting millions and changing the course of history. And as nations grappled with political and territorial ramifications, individuals faced terrible losses of family members, relationships, and even whole communities.
1: Yeah, and so often it was the case that a soldier would propose to his lady right before he left for war so that she would be there for him waiting when he returned.
3: And so often... They didn't. They did not. Now, France, of course, a nation central to the conflict, uh, was hit particularly hard. The beautiful landscapes were transformed into nightmarish battlefields. Young men, brothers, sons, and lovers left their homes. Many never returned. The numbers were staggering. By the war's end, an estimated, and this is just French soldiers, an estimated 1.4 million French soldiers soldiers were killed. Countless others wounded or left traumatized. But this was a monumental loss and it meant that there were villages, very few villages that had any young men remaining. So many villages were devastated that if they had any young men, it was only a handful or two. Many women had dreamt of futures with their beloveds. Mm. As you said, they had um, talked about marriage when the soldier returned. They found themselves trapped in a painful situation. They were neither wives nor were they widows. Their partners with whom they had envisioned their lifetimes with were gone. And these uh, these women suffered grief but had this added layer of complexity, lack of social acknowledgement of their loss. Get over it. You weren't even married. right. After all, without a marriage, there was no formal recognition of the relationship in those days, and this left many in, well, a heartbreaking void. Recognizing this profound anguish, the French government took an unprecedented step in 1921. They introduced the concept of posthumous marriage. Was a chance for the grieving partners to formally and legally affirm their bond that they had shared with the deceased. And this was not like some sort of theatrical seance or just a ritual. It was a, about genuine acknowledgement and validation.
1: And I understand why the people might want to partake in this, but what was the benefit for the French government?
3: It was an act of sympathy, it was an act of mercy.
1: Wow. I guess I'm just not used to that.
3: (laughs) Government behaving (laughs) in in such a manner. Yeah, no, I hear you there. At its core, posthumous marriage was a compassionate gesture from the state. It was a way to say, we see your pain and we recognize the love that you've lost. For many women, this was more than just symbolic. It was an opportunity to attain a sense of closure Mm. for them, to feel that society understood the depth of their grief, and to memorialize the relationship that the war had cruelly snatched away. Now, while there were many posthumous marriages in France since the law's inception, a few stand out. The very first documented case set the tone. The initial case that led to the establishment of the law uh, involved a woman named Irene Jodard. During World War I, her her fiancé, a soldier named André Capra, was killed in 1918 just before they were set to marry. Now, understandably, she was devastated by the loss and she sought the right to marry him posthumously. So she petitioned the French president to allow her to proceed with the marriage. And he was touched by the story and recognized the wider issue of many women who had lost their fiancés during the war, and I'm sure men too. So the president approved her request. And as I mentioned, in 1921, the law was was finalized, allowing posthumous marriage under specific conditions. Irene's determination to honor her commitment and love for Andre really paved the way for others to seek similar recognition.
1: I have a question. Yes. What were the conditions? Like, you couldn't just say, oh, there was this guy that I liked and... Now I want to be married to him because he's dead. Like, he, the, yeah. there had to have been There had to have
3: been some parameters. sort of documentation that uh, that was the intention or witnesses, family members had to come forward. Okay. As the 20th century waned and the new millennium dawned, a global landscape underwent transformi- a transformative shift in the recognition and acceptance of LGBTQ plus rights. France... Known for its rich history of romance and revolution, found itself at a crossroads of cultural evolution. Uh, the nation's unique tradition, unique tradition of posthumous marriage, which was born out of the tragedies of World War One, soon met the rising tide of LGBTQ plus advocacy. So, in the early two thousands, it was a time of increasing global awareness of queer issues. And amidst this backdrop, there emerged a story that would uh, would weave itself into the evolving understanding of LGBTQ relationships with the long-standing French tradition of posthumous marriage. Now, the names and the details remain shrouded in privacy, but reports from this era chronicle a tale of two men deeply committed to one another, tragically before they could officially declare their love in the eyes of the law. One of them met an untimely death. Uh, the surviving partner, grieving, of course, sought solace in the possibility of a posthumous marriage, wishing to honor their bond formally. And this was no small matter. It was a profound collision of a tradition and and progress. Mm. Recognizing their love would mean more than just upholding an old custom of posthumous marriage. It would signify a bold step toward inclusivity, affirming that love between individuals of the same sex was just as profound and deserving of recognition as any other. The eventual acceptance and realization of this posthumous union was... A seminal moment. The incident was not just a tribute to the enduring love between these two individuals. It symbolized the broader journey toward acceptance and equality for the LGBTQ plus community in France and beyond. And more recently, a moving il- illustration of this timeless bond involves... The story of Magali and Jonathan in 2017. Magali and Jonathan's love story, like many others, filled with dreams of the future, plans together. Their bond was the kind that friends envied, but tragedy did strike without warning. Jonathan was involved in a devastating uh, road accident, which tragically killed him.
1: Was he riding a motorcycle?
3: Don't have the details on that. It doesn't say car accident. It doesn't say traffic accident. It just says road accident. Okay. Now grief, as we know, it takes many forms. For this young bride to be, the the pain was immeasurable, but it was also mingled with her need to honor their love. While most would turn to memorials or personal rituals, she chose to petition the government to posthumously marry Jonathan, and this wasn't an easy decision. And you mentioned, you know, well, what are the circumstances? Mm. How, do, how do you, it's not an easy process. She had to navigate the administrative complexities involved in such a request. She had to provide evidence of Jonathan's intention to marry before his untimely demise. Friends and family, they rallied around her. They offered testimonials and shared memories and painted a very vivid picture of the couple's plans to be married. The French authorities acknowledged the depth of their bond and her profound grief, and they granted permission for the posthumous wedding.
1: Wow, as recently as 2017.
3: Posthumous marriage is still legal in France, again, under certain conditions.
1: It doesn't surprise me that it's still legal. It just kind of surprises me that it happens. Yeah. And not that there's not reasons for it. I can just certainly understand you know that kind of grief and how everyone grieves differently, and right, right. I guess you just don't hear about it a lot. You don't, which is why I really appreciate your storytelling. <laughs> Thanks very much, you're, sir.
3: You're welcome, madam. Again, the process in France for a posthumous wedding is not simple. The living partner must demonstrate that there was going to be a marriage with the deceased, mm-hmm. and the president the president himself of France has to approve it. Now it of course, appears unconventional to many, the essence of the law speaks to a universal human sentiment of love that persists beyond life's boundaries, society's compassionate response to grief and loss, and it helps remind us that love, in its truest form, knows no end. If you want to learn more about this, here are a couple of sources for you. Sites of Memory, Sites of Mourning, The Great War in the European Cultural History, Uh, written by Jay Winter, and posthumous marriages in France. That was a BBC News article from 2013. So you can marry a corpse under certain conditions.
1: I mean, I think phrasing it like marrying a corpse is a little different from what people think they're doing. Yeah, but
3: it's a a grabby headline. Oh, okay. (laughs) This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca.
1: And when kids can start to reason that they get something, if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them.
3: Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer.
2: And now, that thing in the middle.
1: So every year, as we know, they release the list of the most popular baby names. Uh, But I just found, according to Baby Names UK Mm. and Google Trends, the least popular baby names of last year. All right.
3: Number five, Lorraine. See, I... (laughs) There's nothing wrong with Lorraine.
1: I love this because this Lorraine, this has to be based on it dropping in the rankings rather than it actually being the least popular. Because I know hamburger is a less popular baby (laughs) name than Lorraine. Right. Or lawnmower blade. Right. Number four, Kobe. Kobe
3: or Cody? Kobe. Like the beef? Yeah. Like a cow's I'm, ass? I'm
1: guessing that's probably why it's oh. dropping in the rankings. So. I
3: see. Number three, Gary. Gary? Gary's a good Gary is a. Gary's your friend. Gary's your pal. Gary's the guy that comes over and helps you repair your fence.
1: Yeah, but an infant named Gary is so funny.
3: <laughs> yeah, Gary's not going to help you repair your fence when he's an infant.
1: Number two, Angela. I have to believe that it's partially due to the character from The Office being so oh. unpleasant.
3: Oh, okay, that makes sense. And number one, Stuart.
1: Stewart. Stuart! Stewart. Stewart.
3: I like the name Stuart. It's much better than Winkle Rotary Engine.
1: Exactly. Katie sent us a message on Instagram. I'm watching Spaced for the 7,000th time, and I can't unsee it. Cat reminds me so much of Jessica Stevenson, and it makes me inconceivably happy. This is a massive compliment, just so you know. Wow. <laughs> Thank you so much, Cricket.
3: Jimmy sent us an email. Hey, Kat and JG, I may have had Taco Bell a little too close to bed the other night, but it led to my first Cat and Jethro dream. Ooh. In said dream, I was exploring a six-floor abandoned cruise ship with you, and we decided to race to the end of the swimming pool that, for some reason, was filled with chocolate pudding.
1: Well, that's viscous.
3: And, and let me just stop right there. If there were, was a cruise ship that had a swimming pool uh, full of chocolate pudding, mm-hmm. I would be the first up the gangway. At the end of the pool was like a rock climbing wall, and J.G. was winning, so I decided to pull his leg a little bit, in which he said, hey, no (laughs) pull-downsies.
1: What a specific thing to dream.
3: That's... That sounds like something I would say. Yeah. I don't remember who won the race, but I do remember I slowed JG down enough that it wasn't him.
1: (laughs) Ha ha.
3: Just made me laugh and I wanted to share. I've been listening for a while and have less than 30 episodes to get caught up. So I'm super excited for the much teased third podcast in the family which is from Beneath the Hollywood Sign. Uh, Nan McNamara, Steve Kubine, uh two incredibly smart, funny, talented people uh, talk about the golden age of Hollywood and some of the stranger things that have happened. And that drops on...
1: October 16th.
3: October 16th. Coming right
1: up. Rachel sent us a message. Hey guys, what is the ideal length for stories submitted for the Halloween episode? I have one, but I'm worried it might be too long. I wrote them back and I said between two and six minutes, you know, yeah. we've, we've had really long ones. We've had really short ones. They're all great. So I wouldn't worry too much about it,
0: but you should get to submitting them quickly.
3: Curator at theboxofoddities.com.
0: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey Matt, did you know that wombats poop cubes? Nope, never heard that before. Did you know the unicorn is the national animal of Scotland, Ken? I didn't know, nor do I care. Neil, did you know that Liechtenstein is the only doubly landlocked country in Europe? Jeff, isn't that an American pop artist? Find us on all your preferred podcast apps and take part in the fun of playing bar trivia without the need to wear pants. Real mature, Jeff. Forget it, Neil. It's triviality. And now,
2: today's highlight in history. On this date, somewhere in the world, some woman or man said something and some shit went down. Man, we loves us some history. This is the Box of Oddities.
3: What you got for me?
1: Are you asking what they have for Halloween stories?
3: I'm asking you what you got for me. Oh, I see. Yeah, I see.
1: Vibrio vulnificus is a bacterium that occurs naturally in warm marine environments, such as estuaries and coastal waters. It's related to V. cholerae, which is the causative agent of cholera. Uh And it can be found in raw or undercooked shellfish, particularly oysters, as well as in contaminated water. One strain is bioluminescent, which is really cool. But what's not cool is that when humans come into contact with VV, is what I'm going to call it because it's mm. very hard to pronounce, um, it can cause three types of infections.
3: Now- come in contact you you're saying not just ingesting it
1: not just ingesting it, just
3: touching it
1: if you eat undercooked or raw shellfish like oysters you could get acute gastroenteritis which means you'll be experiencing vomiting diarrhea blah 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 the tricky part is that vv doesn't change the look taste or smell of oysters But even if you don't eat shellfish, to your point, it can still cause trouble. If you have a weak immune system, it can lead to invasive sepsis. It means the bacteria can invade your bloodstream and cause some pretty terrible symptoms.
3: This sounds horrifying. Yeah,
1: If you have a cut or a wound and it comes into contact with contaminated marine water, you could end up... With a wound infection, and this usually happens when you're swimming or wading in infected water or get pricked by fish spines like those of a stingray. Now, to avoid VV infections, it's recommended to follow these precautions. Practice good hygiene, so washing your hands thoroughly with soap and water after handling raw shellfish or coming into contact with potentially contaminated water. Also, you want to avoid consuming raw or undercooked shellfish. That, of course, straight up just reduces your risk of getting this, which is important.
3: Yeah, I have a friend who just loves eating raw oysters. I'm surprised he's still alive.
1: (laughs) You also want to be cautious about open wounds. If you have cuts or open wounds, you want to avoid exposure to warm seawater or brackish water as it can increase the risk of infection. Also, make sure that if you are eating shellfish, you store it properly to avoid cross-contamination.
3: Don't store shellfish in brackish water.
1: Now, infections are up this year due to unusually warm ocean temperatures. According to Galveston County Health District, a middle-aged man died after eating raw oysters in Galveston, Texas, in September. They did note that he had underlying health conditions Uh that lowered his immunity. But in July, one person in Connecticut died and two others were hospitalized after being infected and one person in new york and three in north carolina died in july and august from vv
3: was this did they all eat raw shellfish or varies? okay different situations
1: the u.s typically sees a handful of deaths of engulfed states, but it's rare for deaths to be spiking in east coast states as well. So it's not something that maybe east coast people are used to being worried about, but it should be. Even though it's still considered pretty rare, the symptoms of VV infection can include fever, nausea, vomiting, stomach cramps, and watery diarrhea. Symptoms of a bloodstream infection could include fever, chills, low blood pressure, and the presence of blistering skin lesions. Ooh. In the case of wound infection, it can start with redness, pain, swelling, fever, discoloration, and discharge. Now, wound infections can sometimes lead to necrotizing fasciitis, also known as flesh-eating disease. I, I knew it. Yeah. I knew
3: that's where you were going with this. Yeah,
1: Necrotizing fasciitis is a type of soft tissue infection. It releases toxins and enzymes that break down the body's tissues. The infection quickly spreads along the facial planes, which are thin layers of connective tissue that surround muscles and organs. And as a result, the affected tissues become necrotic or dead. Initially the infected areas may appear red, swollen and warm to the touch. Of course that's because your body's trying to fight off, you know, what's mm. attacking it. But unfortunately, it Your white blood cells only have so much going for them. Usually, the infection will then lead to blisters and skin lesions. Fluid-filled blisters might develop on the skin, and these blisters can contain bloody or yellowish fluid that are often a sign of Uh. tissue damage and impending necrosis.
3: Oh, hope you enjoyed your oysters.
1: Severe pain. Of course, as your flesh starts to die it hurts (laughs) and it's often really disproportionate with the visible signs of what's going on so you can see your leg is red and maybe a little puffy but it hurts a lot more than it looks like it should okay and that's a good sign that something terrible is going on because tissue death is bad news bears the bacteria (laughs) is destroying the blood vessels which leads to a lack of blood supply And that lack of oxygen and nutrients causes the tissues to die. That you'll start to see the blackening of the skin, the Mm. discoloration. The next step is organ failure and sepsis. And in severe cases, the flesh-eating bacteria can lead to these life-threatening conditions. Sepsis occurs when the infection enters the bloodstream, and that causes widespread inflammatory responses that can damage organs and impair their function. And once sepsis sets in, it's really hard to fight because it's throughout your entire body.
3: Start getting your affairs in order at that point. Sadly.
1: And it's such a rugged thing to think this all can stem from, oh, I have a scratch and I went swimming. Right. It's why it's so important to pay attention to your body and don't ignore things just because, and I'm saying this as someone who is historically terrible mm-hmm. at ignoring things that are going wrong with their body. Mm-hmm. So, you know, do as I say, not as I do.
2: <laughs>
1: anyway. If you suspect that you have a VV infection or you're experiencing symptoms after consuming raw shellfish or being exposed to warm seawater, it is important to seek medical attention promptly. It is a treatable disease, but these infections spread so rapidly that the sooner one seeks medical care, the better the chances are of survival. Again, and this might be something that you really enjoy, but maybe consider not eating raw shellfish.
3: It's ironic when you think of it, a person who eats the flesh of um, a shellfish, in turn, their flesh gets eaten.
1: No, I hadn't thought about it that way.
3: Sadly, ironic.
1: It's terrible.
3: Anyway, be careful.
1: The Department of Public Health has urged people to take precautions to protect themselves. And I mean honestly, the easiest thing you can do is just not eat raw shellfish and be aware of your body. If you've been recently swimming and you notice that a part of your body that had a wound on it is unusually uncomfortable or getting redder or whatever, just pay attention to your body because we don't we don't want we don't want you to get eaten.
3: We like you. You're part of our family.
1: If you want to learn more, you can go to the CDC. I got my information from ABC News, NBCConnecticut.com, and several other tabs that I've already closed. Oh, but those were my favorites. (laughs) Sorry about that.
3: We love hanging out with you guys. Thank you so much for making time for us. We look forward to seeing you next time.
1: Until then, keep flying that freak flag. And
3: fly it proudly, you a beautiful freak. And so... Let it be known
2: that the box of oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, it is merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.